The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey guys, Sai from Ace Podcast Nation. Welcome to the second episode in our series of shows. Uh, this one's focusing on mental health. Today we're going to be discussing grief, grief and depression. Uh, if you're affected by any of the subjects covered in tonight's show, then please reach out to a doctor, charity, friends or family, or myself, or I'm sure Phil as well. Yes, uh, couldn't agree more. There's always people there, no matter how bad you feel. And there's always people willing to help, even when there's people you don't know, you've never met. Um, so, sorry, anyway, my guest for today is a journalist and host to be on the pitch, uh, Phil Brown. Thanks for joining me, Phil. Pleasure, man. And agreeing to uh, speak to me about it. It's going to be an emotional emotional subject, emotional show. Um, so, Phil, before we get to talking about sort of your story and the stuff which happened to you. I just wanted to quickly go over my experience with grief just Mm -hmm. because I don't want to take away from the stuff that you're going to talk about by sort of going on about me type of thing, if you get me. So basically, um, when I was 16, uh, my father passed away. Uh, My brother was 11. So obviously it's traumatic for a child and whatnot but from the moment not the moment but like well it probably was the same day my uncle so the same day i had family members friends within days in the funeral telling me you've got to be strong be there for your mother look mm-hmm. after your brother etc etc so i was always from that moment i didn't want to put any extra pressure on my mum so i didn't talk to her about it I wanted to get my brother through school without having any problems, any behavior problems, anything like that. So he could do, go on to be a success. And he's done that. 
So what it meant is I then went from 16 to 18. I was working by the time I was 16. I was full time. So I never talked, but I kept it bottled up. Yeah. And then I started drinking a lot every day. Like age of 18, I was drinking every day, sometimes in the morning, which is problematic. But I was functioning. I was still going to work and I was still doing stuff. I was just drinking a lot. Um, the more you drink, the more depressed you get, the more stressful things get. And that went on and on and on. And it was only when I got together with my wife, I was sort of still drinking since so 2004. So you're talking, God. By the time I hit my mid-20s, so at least another 12, another 10 12 years later, I was still, hadn't dealt with it, had had problems with depression. I'd been treated for depression on and off. I was still drinking. But then as I, after I had my first son, I stopped drinking and stuff like that. So I was healthier from that respect. But I couldn't even hold a conversation about my father. I couldn't discuss mm -hmm. it with anyone, with relatives. With, I was conscious of my wife, but, that, you know, obviously the kids are going to start asking you need to be able to discuss it you need to be able to go to the cemetery because i hadn't been for years and years and then eventually sometime after my 30th birthday so like a good 15 years later i started seeing a therapist or a counselor or whatever and i had some treatment for that um and i actually wrote a letter to my dad in that as part of that sort of yeah. thing but that that grief which i didn't deal with as a child yeah or as a you know as a teenager caused me issues all the way through to my adult life and it's only really recently probably the last five or six years where that hasn't been a big part of sort of my mental health and my anxiety and stuff like that. And I just wanted to say that there because <clears throat> I think with depression and grief, drinking and other stuff makes it harder to deal with, makes it harder to combat what's making you depressed. But equally, if you don't deal with things like grief, they lead to a whole lot of different issues and I think it's very difficult. I think it's difficult for anyone to deal with grief. But particularly, I think it's difficult for boys and men. It's changing a bit these days. But certainly when I was younger, and I'm sure when you were younger, Phil, it's like boys and men were taught not to speak about your feelings and show emotion in public and stuff like that. So it's, it just becomes a knock-on effect. Mm -hmm. of one thing <clears throat> sorry okay. uh, one thing to another uh, <clears throat> so like even now uh, you know I'm 37 now <clears throat> it's 21 years ago and I still find it difficult to speak to and I do think that's because I didn't deal with it when I was 16 mm -hmm. but anyway that's, well, that's where I am with that then first of all let me say hi uh empathic i am towards your own suffering 
Um, and there's a lot of what you said there that's recognizable on my own. And the fact that um, my recovery is skin deep. And usually I'm a few sentences away from, I'm going to explain my story in a minute, from getting extremely emotional about the things that trouble me. Uh, I find it difficult to talk about also because I have avoided this so much in my own life for this very reason. Uh, and then it becomes toxic. So I think you bring up a couple of important points, your cultural frame of reference with how you deal with anything in your life. Um, and that's usually set in your formative years when you're a child. And some people never develop emotional maturity. Some people never develop the ability to control their emotions. Their emotions control them. And I'm often in that bracket. Uh, look, I was born in Belfast in the 70s. I grew up there. It was a violent upbringing. And I was normalized to things that most kids would not be normalized to. Uh, wasn't the best foundation, but in other ways, uh, there was a very close unity that came as a result of that. That gave me a lot of spiritual nourishment as a child. Um, and so it's weird in that in the midst of all that violence, there was some level of comfort. Um, my issues really began when I was 30. Uh, I didn't really struggle with depression or addiction or alcoholism or anything like that. It wasn't an issue in my life. It wasn't present. Um, when I was 30, I opened my own business that year. I bought my own house and my partner at the time, who was my wife-to-be, was pregnant with our first child. Um, ten months after having him, <clears throat> I came home and found her dead. And um, it was an incredibly ugly scene. Uh, that's not something you get over. And I can't drive past that property anymore. I couldn't, I can't be near it. Uh, and what I seen when I walk through the door will never leave me. And in fact, to this very day, I still pull my sleeves down over my hands when I'm waking up my kids in the morning because I'm afraid of them being cold. And uh, I can't look at anyone. If I see someone sleeping, uh, I have triggers, if you want to call it that. Maybe two months. This was this this happened three weeks before our first Christmas as parents. So it was an extremely difficult time. My family's on the other side of the world. I'm alone with this 10-month-old baby. And uh, brand new business, brand new home. And I didn't know what to do. I was struggling. And grief is a is is an incredibly personal, intimate thing. Uh, it means different things to different people and how you deal with it. Uh, I didn't have the mental capabilities. I wasn't equipped to deal with that type of loss uh, and that type of tragedy, and nor was the people around me. It was extremely difficult. Uh, I add in a couple of other health factors. Um, I had to have a knee operation due to football. And in America, back in 2007, opiates were available. And I was prescribed opiates partly because of the operation that I had to have and partly because of the fact I only have one kidney and I cannot take um, anti-inflammatories for pain. But I remember <clears throat> the first time they became a problem for me, the opiates, the pills, the, the painkillers. I was immersed in grief, sadness, tragedy, that cycle of, I can't get out of this. I'm, I just, I can't stop crying and I can't function as a human being. And then I took what the Americans call Vicodin. 
I took two Vicodin. And for the first time, I felt this fleeting happiness. Everything didn't seem so bad. I could function. I could do some things with my life. I could be a father. I could be present. Still, the heavy cloud of grief was over me, but it wasn't as bad. And anybody that's been down this road knows how this story goes. You start out with two, it turns into three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Um, when in the, at, at its worst, I had migrated from two Vicodin a day to 15, 16 morphine pills a day, um, which were 60 milligram, which today would kill me. Um, and it would kill most people who aren't opiate tolerant. It had got to horrendous degrees. It decimated my physical health. I went on to have multiple spinal surgeries. I had five knee surgeries. I lost my gallbladder. Um, I, as I said, I've already lost my kidney. Uh, um, I, I got rods and screws all the way up my spine. So for the next number of years, it was difficult. Uh, I got remarried and I had kids. But even though you get remarried, um, you still don't leave your previous relationship behind. That still haunts you, you know. And so uh, I now have a 12-year-old child where I'm having to go through this all over again because now he's got questions about his mother. Um, but basically for that entire decade, um, which was in 2007, 2017, I was heavily inebriated throughout it, heavily depressed, heavily in grief, um, could not emerge from it. There was other things that happened during that time that didn't help. Um, for example, my current wife, we were having our child and she, we lost one at five months. That didn't help either. Um, but the, I, I started, uh, like most addicts, I was on and off um, tablets. Uh, the, the, the times off were incredibly brief because I had a psychological need to take them that I wasn't addressing. And people often confuse addiction with dependency dependency you can get somebody off drugs and they will stay off them addiction they um, if you don't address the psychological reason why people take them then they'll still take them when they come off and i hadn't addressed the psychological need like you so the fleeting moments that i was off them were incredibly fleeting i go back on them and i was getting really tired of this cycle so i decided to do something um I, uh, I started to record videos of myself uh, when I was on these pills. And the reason why I did that is because I knew at some point I was going to come off them again. And I didn't want to be tempted to go back on them. I wanted to leave messages for my future self and saying, there's no solutions to your problems in these bottles. In fact, it just is providing another problem. And there's no happiness in addiction. I want you to see how depressed you are, how sad you are how tragic everything is and how close to suicide you are. So that three, four months from now, when you come off these and you're tempted to go back on them, I want you to watch this and see what lies ahead of you if you want to go back down this road. So <clears throat> that has helped me. I've since, you know, my, my sobriety at the moment, it, I don't say clean because I, it implies that you're dirty if you're, not if you're not if if you're taking something then you're not. Um, my sobriety of pills and and the psychological need to take drugs it hasn't been that long. It's maybe been just shortly less than a year. But towards the end, I had reverted to self harm, and so I stopped eating, and I lost 
40 pounds in three months. So uh, that was when things had gotten really bad. My hats didn't fit anymore. My wedding rings fell off. My shoes wouldn't fit. None of my clothes would fit. My eyesight started to go um, just because of the level of depression that I was in. And um, eventually I started to work on things like meditation, uh, mindfulness present, and really looking at my thoughts every time I got triggered to want to take drugs again. Um, and how I could re-divert my attention, deal with that, and processing grief in a healthy way. Um, I'm learning how to do these things. I'm a, I'm a fallible human being like everybody else. One of the other problems with addiction and depression is that when you're in that mind state, you neglect everything else in your life. And then the stress of neglecting everything else in your life adds to your depression. It makes it harder to climb out. So I empathize and sympathize with anyone out there that's experiencing some similar symptoms, similar problems, because um, it can happen to anybody. And almost always circumstantial and almost always most addictions are about treating emotional, unresolved emotional pain. And uh, same with depression. And we're all vulnerable to this. And uh, I sympathize with anyone out there who's going through this. Yeah, I think with I think particularly when you if you sort of take drugs or you drink or whatever it is you do to escape your depression, in many ways, when you wake up from the drinking or the whatever it may be, you feel worse, which then creates this cycle of doing it again to escape yes. that sort of shame Correct. and that <clears throat> sadness that you you can't escape it because mm-hmm. I know like with when I was drinking it was I would wake up I'd be so hungover I'd have not barely slept and it's not proper sleep because it's you just pass out and you wake up and you feel horrendous everything hurts you just feel like there's no escape from this. And the only way to escape for me was to drink, mm-hmm. go out, and I would feel better because I wouldn't be thinking about all the things which were the reasons why I was drinking and why I was avoid or what I was avoiding to talk about. So if if you could speak to yourself like in the ap- aftermath of like after your partner uh, passed mm-hmm. away, what would you? What do you think you would say to yourself to to avoid sort of going into the issues that you had afterwards? Like, how do mm. you think you could speak to yourself? How do you think you would avoid or try and avoid that? That's a really good question. I've never thought of it before. Honestly, I don't know because. At the time, it was extremely difficult, and my my partner at the time, she was born and raised here in America, and I remember the day it happened, the police came out, and the first thing that I remember is that her mother called, looking for her on the phone, and asked me to put her on the phone, because she had no idea she'd passed away. 
I handed the phone to the police officer because I couldn't do it. I couldn't tell her that her daughter was dead. So the police officer did it. And the screams that came after it are something I will never forget. But this, I, I have a really good relationship with them at the moment, but at the time they blamed me. Nobody knew why she had died. She had heart failure. Um, nobody knew why. So I understand the human beings need to make sense of something. And so at the time, it was incredibly stressful to deal with because I had no support. Uh, even friends of mine who were very close to me distanced themselves from me uh, because especially man you said something that's really important man like you like you were taught as a young kid to conceal your emotions and men don't like being around people that are depressed i don't i can't speak for women i'm not a woman i don't know but you know you're given a very short window of you need to recover and get on with this and get on with life right these shit happens move on but it's not like that for those who experience this and I remember being really envious of people who had wives and partners. And and so it, it's very difficult to work through those emotions. And I don't know if there was a healthy solution for me at that time where I could have taken everything that was coming at me and dealt with it in a healthy way. Um, I remember, though, very quickly my perspective changing about what was important to me because at that point in my life, I prioritized monetary success. That was my idea of what I needed to do to be happy in life. And I got a lesson very quickly that uh, it does not bring you any degree of happiness once your basic essential needs are met. And it's the wrong pursuit in life. So if I wish I had have dealt with grief in a much more... Uh, in a, in a much less damaging way than what I did. I wish I hadn't have leaned on the drugs for that crutch and support. Uh, um, but I will say one thing that is important in this. About a week after this happened, I went to my doctor. And let me just give you a little bit of background here quickly. Uh, I'm not a spiritual person or I, I'm not a religious person, I should say. Uh, I'm not religious at all. <clears throat> and uh, But clearly there was mental health issues going on here. And the week after that she had died, there was a lot of things that I thought was happening in my house. Um, TVs going on and off. And uh, this was as real to me as anything else. It, it, it was happening. And it, and it was... So I remember going to my doctor and telling him this and saying, look, this is what happened. Um this is what's happening in the house. I'm under enormous pressure and stress. And his words to me were, you cannot tell a counselor this or you will probably lose your child because they're going to think you're losing your mind. So I was basically ditched by the medical system to go deal with it myself. I was not offered any emotional support, any counseling, nothing. I just had to deal with it. And that's why I ended up going to a substance to deal with it because I had no other support. I had nobody to lean on. I, they weren't going to offer me professional help. What was I going to do? I'm not by any means making excuses, but I think if that had been handled better, I might have been steered away from it. I may not have been. I may have done it anyway. But um, if anyone's experiencing things like this, I would 
strongly encourage you to not lie, rely on substances because that's how you end up dead. Because it's very easy to push the envelope when you're when you're doing this thing to drink more than what you should or take more drugs than what you should, uh, and everybody knows the consequences of that. Yeah, that's. See, the reason I asked you about uh, what you'd say to yourself sort of directly after or not directly afterwards, but like in the, the period afterwards is because I was going to sort of ask like what what type of support do you think people who are grieving need mm. to process it in a healthy way? But what you just said to me or what you just told me that is, I find that absolutely bloody unbelievable because there you are <clears throat> basically almost begging for help, saying, look, yes. I need help to deal with this. I'm a single father all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. I'm under incredible amount of pressure. I'm grieving or not grieving, as it were. And... <laughs> And their concern, like, and I get in some ways they're trying to be like kind to you and say, sure. you know, don't say it because they don't want to see you sort of lose your child. Like, but to me, it should be, what can we do to help you? Let's help you get through it rather than the first thing being, oh, don't say anything because they'll take your child away or even yeah. take your child away. It should be right. You know, they know the situation. They know your health problems. They know what's happened to your partner. That's the one place you should want, you know, you feel yeah. like you should be able to turn and get some support and help. That's mind-blowing. I would hope today that they would give a different answer to that question, given everything that's happened uh, over the last 12 years. <clears throat> I would hope that um, that wouldn't be the case, especially when you factor in that healthcare here costs a lot of money. Uh, it's not free. So you expect a certain standard of care. Uh, and my child was the only reason why I wasn't committing suicide. He was the only thing I had left. So for me, if they'd have done anything with, with him, then I would have lost, for me, any reason to, to, to want to fight through this. So that petrified me. And then, of course, like I said, I was I had opened my own business. so with not working, my income stopped. So I had that added stress too, of what am I going to do? I've got a mortgage, I've got a kid, I've got to go back to work, but how can I go back to work when I can't function? But if I don't go back to work, then this pain gets worse, the problems get worse, and then add into the fact that I'm now an addict. And so the stress was just truly, in fact, I'm still dealing with the mess of neglect and things in my life during that period that I'm still trying to clean up and will probably take me a long, long time to clean it up. But I don't stress about things the way I used to. And um, meditation and philosophy has helped me a lot in dealing with the stress, stresses of life. And, and you know, when you talked about something there, uh, about distraction from your own life, about escapism, we're talking about grief, but we're living in a world where we've got rampant inequality, where we've got people that are barely able to afford their bills. I see it here in America every day. And so they're addicted to their iPhones. They're addicted to anything that distracts them from the reality of their life. 
from the ebb and flow of life. We, you often hear about America having an opiate addiction or an opiate crisis. It doesn't have an opiate crisis, it has a mental health crisis because of the rampant inequality. Uh, and so if you offer somebody a substance that gives them a temporary escape from their, their ebb and flow and the, the, the drudgery of their own life, a lot of people will take that. Uh, and, and so I think when we're talking about addressing these problems, not just with grief, but any trigger for depression, it has to be much more comprehensive because it's incredibly complex to treat. Why do we have, when you look at the trillions of variables that goes into depression, it's very, very difficult. We still don't know why human beings are conscious. And so I think uh, it's really complex to treat. I think it has to be much more than a pharmacological solution. And here's a drug. This is going to make you feel better because depression is almost always circumstantial. And no matter what drug you take, it won't change the external circumstances that are causing you to be in that mental state in the first place. I think it's about how we deal with those issues, uh, education, much uh, empathy, so that doctors don't tell someone who's in this crisis through no fault of their own that if you respond to this in the wrong way, we're going to make this worse for you. Uh, I, I think that the medical community has a responsibility. Uh, unfortunately, here with the medical community being a business, the priority is profit. But in much more holistic societies, I think there has to be better answers to these than here's some drugs, go away. Uh, it has to be, I think therapy is really important and people feeling that other people are empathic to their problems and, and not judging because we sadly have built a society and value people on their ability to consume. How much can you, if, if you're poor, you're, you're not afforded the same luxuries that everybody else because you don't have the same ability to consume, to spend. But if you're wealthy, you're given all types of privileges and, and, and pats on the back because you have money. And, and I think that is a, is a serious problem. We have to adjust that, that in our society. Yeah, I think whether it's, when it's grief or depression, whether any mental health issue which stems from either an incident or circumstance of life and stress or pressure, the only way to really deal with, with it, and I've sort of only learned this myself in recent years, is to deal with to deal with what the issue is. So if it's like a stress-related thing where you've got no money, so everything else is harder, everything's getting on top of you, you've got a family, you've got kids, you've got a mortgage, yeah. and you, you're struggling to pay your bills and struggling to buy food and things like that, which is, you know, that is a very real problem in the UK and the US these days, sure. especially for sort of young families. And I think education of, and like you say, if you to say if there's like a young family who are struggling and they struggling to pay their bills, struggling to buy food, they need to be able to feel like they can go somewhere, whether there's a doctor or a charity or whoever, mm -hmm. and discuss their circumstances without being judged Absolutely. or without feeling like they're going to lose their kids or they're going to have a social worker around mm -hmm. their house judging that you know how how clean is their house or how how you know how clean are their kids and how are their kids being looked after of course that's important and all that i understand that but if you want 
people as a whole to become comfortable with their mental health and comfortable with tackling their problems in a healthy way. They have to know that there's support there without being judged. And I think it's very easy for 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 me or for you or for people who've been through stuff in some ways to be open to that. But I think if people have never experienced, if people don't know what it's like, or if it's their first experience of having some sort of depression or mental health or stress issues, they immediately think that, oh, I can't tell my friends that because they'll be like, like you say, blokes don't want to deal with it. And it's like, if you're out with your mates or you're whatever, having a couple of beers, you don't want I never used to talk about like how mm-hmm, depressed I was feeling because you don't want to bring a downer to the thing Good. and there was times where I couldn't contain it of course mm-hmm. but, and even with grief like over the years there's been instances where people have died and I've really struggled with my mates with what to say what to do and that's not because I don't want to be there for them or I don't want to help or I don't want to... You just... And like I like to think that I'm relatively in tune enough to be able to deal with it and speak to people about... Like if they've lost someone and stuff like that at the time. But I've seen people leave the room. Do you know what of I mean? Course. And not... Because they just... They, not that they, they don't want to be there for the person. They just don't know how to deal with it. That's correct. So they take a back step or they... Well, I think there's also another fundamental problem here um, that comes with psychiatry anyway. And I think that it's really, really difficult to articulate how you feel. Words are symbols. And emotion is subjective. It's really difficult to actually describe how you feel and put that into something as objective as words. Uh, and which which why I think child psychiatry is is almost a pseudo science because it's it's feeding children words, uh, colloquialisms, uh, and and different uh, different ways of explaining things that fall into cliches, and almost ask leading questions about how you feel. Are you sad? Yes. Are you depressed? Yes. Do you do this? Yes. But that never really gets to how you're feeling. Because it's much more nuanced and complex than that. And it's, it's some of it is your environment, some of it's your social conditioning, some of it is circumstance. Um, and a lot of it has to deal with your the way you're living. And so for me, I think uh, when we look at our society and, and how we deal with these issues, in, in our society, there's a small number of winners and mostly losers. Uh, a few people are really, really wealthy at the very top and the rest are all just trying to make it. And I think that's a problem. Uh, I think advertising is a problem because the internet was about an open exchange of ideas. Now we're all grouped into liberal, conservative, white, black, Hispanic, 
because that's what advertisers want to target. So social media has now put you into a group where you basically only get exposed to people who think like you and, and act like you. That's a problem. Instagram's a problem because young kids are looking at Instagram and going, I want to be a celebrity. This is why they don't particularly like Facebook. Facebook's more intimate. It's about intimate connections with people you know. Instagram and Twitter, of course, they offer they offer celebrity and young girls see other girls showing off their bodies and want to be, they all have to be perfect, they all have to be beautiful, they all have to look a certain way, and they all want to be popular. And uh, this is true of boys too. We see this uh, manifest in its own self in different ways with boys. That's a problem because what we're championing and valuing as success is opulence, celebrity, uh, status, all the things that don't really matter. And and uh, if you uh, as Jim Carrey once said, I wish everybody could live like this to see how it's not the answer. This is not the answer to anything. Look, when I opened my own business, I was making more money than I ever thought I would ever have, uh, that I could ever make, uh, and I was the most depressed I was ever in my life. I mean, I was suicidal every day, and every day was how do I get out of bed and function? I might as well have been skint up to my neck and that it wouldn't have made any difference my headspace was exactly the same um and so i just think uh the people people that don't have it's very easy when you look at advertising constantly telling you, you need this to be happy you need this to be happy you need this to be happy how it's a bottomless pit how you can play this game forever and never find happiness i think you need to be much more present about grateful for what you have, focused on what you're doing at the moment, because if you're constantly living in a state of thought where if I can get this, I'll be happy. Well, when you arrive there, you won't be happy. If you're not present, enjoy it. So, and if you don't live, and this is going to sound a bit condescending, I don't mean it to be, but if you don't live in the present, you don't have agency. You're constantly controlled by thoughts. You might as well be a robot. Uh, and, and whatever thought pops into your head will control your emotions. I think uh, for me with meditation, it really helped me identify negative thought cycles and how to, this is just a thought, I can change this, reframe it into something more positive. And that has helped me with my life. Better eating habits, you know, better physical habits. I, I, I go to a gym, I, I take care of myself, I care about myself. Because when you're in, depre- when you're in depression, you stop caring about yourself. And, and that bleeds into everything that you do. Yeah, I think being depressed is very difficult to get out of that cycle. And I think I think certainly in the UK, I would assume is similar in the US, I think sometimes there's this tendencies by the medical professionals where you go, you go and say, I'm struggling, I'm depressed, I'm stressed, whatever it may be. The first thing is, I'm going to put you on these tablets. Yeah. And then they send you, have like a five-minute appointment, and then they send you away. And it's almost like you have to go there and say, no, look, I'm really struggling. I feel like I can't go on anymore. And then suddenly they take notice. Whereas if they... T- take a notice six months or a year prior when you'd said look i'm finding everything really stressful i'm really struggling then if they'd done something i don't know what 
because I'm not a doctor, but I I know there's other treatments other than medication. And if you can educate people to change their mindset and how they think about what's being what's stressing them out, what's depressing mm-hmm. them, what's important, like you say, if you can educate those people before you medicate them, then maybe they won't come back in a year's time tearing their own hair out or self-harming or addicted to something because they've tried to either self-medicate or find a different way to cope with the stress. And I think, I do feel like there's a tendency. Sometimes I've been over the, you know, over the over the last few years, if I've been struggling, I'll go and see a doctor. And sometimes I just want them to, maybe just take note or just listen or just know or send me to see someone, whatever it may be. And it's just, it almost feels like sometimes they don't even look up from their laptop mm-hmm. or their notebook. They write you a prescription and away you go. And well, in their defense, <clears throat> it's incredibly complex uh, because there's almost unique reasons for everybody why someone is, is depressed. And it's much harder to fix those problems than it is to say, here, take a take a pill that will make you forget you're depressed for a while. Um, especially in, in and certainly prevalent here, where um, even on an, intended or not, uh, finance drives prescription habits. So they've got what what most of what doctors know about depression is the same as you, because we can't even settle on what a definition of depression is. Look, when they first designed Prozac. And they designed these drugs. There was an argument over what met the threshold for depression. And initially, it was anyone feeling sad over 30 days. That would be different from grief and depression. But what happens if you're a, a mother and you have a child and that child passes away within a week of, you, of, of her having that baby? She's going to be sad for more than 30 days. Is that depression or grief? So they changed the law. To say one day, that's all it takes. If you're sad for one day, then it's perfectly ethical to prescribe you these pills. That was a business decision. And so today, if you walk into a doctor and say, I'm, I'm depressed, they will write you pills. Instead of saying, all right, how long have you been depressed for? Describe your symptoms, what's your circumstances, and take a much more um, ubiquitous approach to this rather than ask a few leading questions and, and give you a prescription, which is what they're being told to do by drug reps. But depression is, they, they understand it about as much as you do, because, or I do, because this, what, what causes depression, when you look at the human brain, the human brain's the most complex instrument in the universe. It's what we understand everything with. And there's trillions of neural pathways and this conversation is changing our brain. So the idea that it's understood between this three-pound muscle in your head, which might as well be somehow you get um, consciousness out of the muscles in your arms, which is utterly absurd. But that same thing's happening in our brain. And we have no idea how that's happening. Why you're able to contemplate, why you're able to think about yesterday and tomorrow, because most of our suffering is in contemplation. It's about what's going to happen what may happen. It's almost never about what's the present moment, about what you're doing right now. It's always a story you're telling yourself in your head. And when you're in depression, you're always thinking the worst. 
the absolute worst of what can happen. This is why people find it hard to fall asleep at night because when they switch off all their distractions and then they're focusing on their problems, most people think negative. Human brain's hardwired for this. So it's difficult to address it um, therapeutically because it's almost impossible to put the finger on the point as to, okay, you're depressed due to that circumstance, but why do you not have the coping mechanisms to be able to deal with these things in your life? That's a bigger question, and it's usually result, result in, in the answer to that is usually much more than just because my mom and dad hit me when I was a kid. It's usually so much more than that. And that takes time. Doctors don't have that time. That takes understanding. They they are not capable of dealing with this. Look, ADD, ADHD is off the charts here in America, and maybe less than 10% are actually legitimate diagnoses. It's a 10-minute evaluation. Here's your script. Where you go. And that's a disgrace because most of these are being given to children, and we have no idea about the long-term impact on their brains with these drugs. And I think 91% of school shootings here, I might be getting this incorrect, but it's pretty close, were done by kids who have been diagnosed with ADD, ADHD as kids and been on these drugs for a long time. So I think this is a serious problem. We're trying to profit off the treatment of psychological issues in society. And if you look, societies are getting this right. They're, they're empathic societies that don't look on people who are struggling with these issues as dropouts, as lazy, as, as excuses, as weak, as all these things, because somehow survival it's a, to some people is about earning the right to survive. You have to, if you're not working, you're a dropout, you're a bum, you're whatever. Uh, again, because we value consumption so much and the uh, pursuit of wealth so much, it's how we're indoctrinated. Then we value people based on how much they work, how much they make. That's a serious problem. And until we address that and give people meaningful connections in life, then I think we will continue to have this problem. And I read a statistic the other day that since we've been keeping records, um, this is the 20 year olds are the most depressed generation in history. That is a disgrace. At 20 years of age, you shouldn't be you shouldn't even have any stress in your life that would cause this. But we see suicide, especially in boys. I think boys outnumber girls four to one in suicide. Um, uh, it's a serious psychological feeling and it's based on the expectation that society has with them. Yeah, and I think, you know, when I spoke to um, Johnny Owen yesterday, he talked about the pluses and the negatives of social media. Mm -hmm. And the, the pluses by far outweigh the negatives. There's so much opportunity for young people just from their own home on the internet to do exciting creative things so like you say just from that just that alone uh, those extra opportunities alone which we didn't have when we were young means that there should be less mental health issues or depression issues in young men and boys than there was 20 years ago because the world should be better equipped at helping these kids before they get to a point where they kill themselves or they harm And like you say, the fact that they're not and the suicide rate is so high in young men is, is nothing short of disgraceful. 
And I think yeah. a big, real big part of it is education. Because even though like everyone, or not everyone, but a lot of people, you see a lot of people talking about mental health issues. They don't talk about it. In, I've got a 14-year-old, a 12-year-old, mm-hmm. and a 10-year-old. They don't talk about it in their school. They talk not. about all sorts of other stuff, which I'm sure they don't need to know about. Mm-hmm. But they don't address, or they don't, they don't teach them about, about healthy mental like, mm-hmm. well-being. And keeping your mental health tip-top is just as important as keeping your physical health tip-top. They're and, teaching them... They're teaching kids to do what you and I did, to pursue wealth, to pursue status. Uh, you know, when I, you and I were told as kids at school, the answer to being happy is having a good job and good money. Right? That was the, your biggest, that's what I was taught to fear, not having those. If you don't get those, you will not achieve anything meaningful in life. And I'm not dismissing them and saying they're not important, but if you focus solely on this is what I need, and the internet's partially responsible for this, with promoting this, um, then I think you're you're going to set yourself up for major disappointment, even if you achieve it, because you're going to find it soulless. There really isn't anything there to, to be to be envy. You look at people on the internet that are uploading, Floyd Mayweather, uh, uploading videos of his cars, and you're looking like, oh, God, I would just love to live like that. Anybody that does that is incredibly unhappy. Because if you need something external to yourself to bring you happiness, then the problem lies with you. And people who are happy can be happy anywhere. People who aren't happy won't be happy anywhere. They'll bring be whatever problems you have, you bring them with you. Uh, and so, I mean, people look at where I live here in in Los Angeles and think, how could you be unhappy in LA? The sun shines every day. It's palm trees. It's beaches. When you're depressed. I might as well be living in a basement in Afghanistan. It doesn't matter. None of that is noticeable in my consciousness. And it's just darkness. So I think with the internet, there needs to be a bit more regulation with some of these larger companies who are quite nefarious. Facebook, for example. In this country, let's say, if you, when you have these verification windows that says, pick out the three cars in this to show you're not a robot. Um, what Facebook are doing in that situation is they're tracking the movement of your mouse and if your mouse is shaky, they will sell your data to healthcare companies and send early onset of Parkinson's. And then all of a sudden your uh, healthcare premiums go up without being told. If you support certain political movements, they'll sell your data to the police um, and they become aware of who you are. Uh, the Facebook, Google are no longer um, social media companies or, or web searching companies. They're data tracking companies. They sell everything you do. They go to Uber and they buy their data to know where you travel to and from. They took pictures of your house. They took pictures of your street with their permission on Google Street View. Um, every, they sell your web history. They, you are a product on the internet. That has to stop. Regulation needs to step in and say, and this is tr- Google track miners, everybody, so that they can target you. And that is a serious problem because it no longer allows us to have an open, honest exchange of ideas. And what it does do is promotes more partisan ideas. And it's no surprise that today, and you see this in the UK, you see it throughout Europe, you see it here in America, that people are just becoming further and further apart. 
things are becoming more and more extreme. The moderates no longer get elected. Social media is responsible for that and how they group you and what they subject you to and what you see on your timeline. That's a serious problem because we're losing the, um, we're losing that middle ground, the ability to say we're all different. We respect each other's views. We may not like what we say. We may not like what you agree with. Now you've got people that are that are falling out with each other on social media who in, in reality actually like each other because of a political argument, because we lose context, we lose nuance. These things have to stop, I think. Uh, but once again, the, the bad actor is money, is the pursuit of profit. And unfortunately, until we have a much more egalitarian society that cares about people beyond money, I, I don't see depression getting any better. Because no, even the treatment, even the treatment's tied up in profit. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it was interesting what you said about when you were like when we were younger. It was get good qualifications so you can mm-hmm. get a good job. If you if you fail your exams, you can't get a good job and get right. a good career and this and that, and that, so on. So that was the pressure. Whereas these days, I think kids feel like I need to be famous. It's I need and I. Do you think that when they when it dawns on them that very few people are famous, that's going to cause? I'm not saying it'll cause depression, but it's going to cause stress. It's going to cause a a negative spike in their mind where they come to the realization that they're not going to be Logan Paul or whoever. Mm -hmm. And I think you're right. Consumerism is a big big part. And particularly, like in America, I think it's a real, that's a real problem that Massive the problem. doctors are governed by the medical reps and they just want to sell their medication. So Th- it's difficult then to know whether what the doctor's giving you, is he giving me that because I need it or is he giving me that because he's got to just dish out the prescriptions, Well, make a profit. One of the consequences of this is exactly what we're seeing today. So Brexit is a consequence of this because people feel forgotten. People feel robbed, cheated. You may not agree with Brexit. I don't personally either, but I understand why people did it. Uh, Trump and Sanders out here politically the opposite, but they're popular for the same reason because there's a lot of people who are broke, who are struggling, who are sick and tired of the status quo. In this country, you now have a lady called uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who, like Bernie Sanders, is a socialist. And she has humongous support amongst the young left because they are experiencing uh, economic deprivation and inequality. Um, Everything goes up. The price of everything goes up. But their wages don't. So these people are living in one-bedroom apartments in the basement in Manhattan paying three grand a month that they don't have. And none of these political uh, individuals are listening to them. Um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was a bartender a year ago. She understands these people. And so it's the same with the people who voted for Trump. And in this country, I keep hearing about how great the, politi- the, the financial system is, but every four years, a a presidential candidate has to run on the economy. So something does not up. So, uh, and we saw with the federal shutdown out here, once people missed one paycheck, they were selling their cars. 
which gives, I think, 72% of Americans don't have $400 to deal with an unforeseen emergency. It's not hard to see why people are depressed, why iPhones are so addictive, why electronics are so addictive, why drugs are so addictive, because this is distracting people from their daily reality. And we are going to get a cataclysmic political change with young people coming up because they can't afford houses like I, our mom and dad do. They can't afford the basic necessities of life because companies, as you deregulate companies, they become greedier, you know, and they, they don't give it back. There's no such thing as trickle-down economics where they start giving it back to their employees. So if you don't have people that can buy your products, you get a recession. We're getting a recession because when you, for the same reason in 2007, when everyone's income's tied up in their mortgage, everything else suffers. When people don't have the ability to buy the products they're being overcharged for, you get a recession. And that's exactly what's happening. Yeah, and like you say, you can't see how it's going to get any better at the moment. It's no. uh, one, of those, one of those things where it seems like it's, there's no end in sight. Because, well, there's. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I'm, I'm just, just saying. Gonna, sorry, we're going to talk about that. You go ahead. I was just going to say that I until until people realise that it is a mental health epidemic in the Western world, whether it's the US or the UK. There's millions of people who are suffering. Some are suffering in silence. Some. Are suffering with addiction because of it and trying to escape their problems. Some are self-harming, some are grieving, some are not, some are just stressed. There's a million reasons, like we said, for being depressed. But until people get help and education and how to deal with it, I just can't see how it's going to get better. And yeah, you know, there's charities and there's people who are trying to change that. But until the people at the very top make the changes to help with those, uh, that education which needs to be done, it's going to be very difficult for the people who are battling to make the changes to implement them. Yeah, I think that's an important point because... <clears throat> We often hear, go get help. But what do you mean by help? Do I need to go see a counselor that tells me, look, you shouldn't be so stressed out that you can't pay your bills? What? No. If you, when, you, when you hear politicians talk about mental health, unless they're willing to implement legislation that's actually going to change the way people live, then they're not worth listening to. They, it, it's just like many other topics that they claim to be right on with, but they don't really mean it. If you want to change the mental health crisis that exists in, in, in our societies, then you have to have a society that dishes out the rewards on a much more balanced basis. You can't have people enslaved um and and expect them to have a degree of happiness like i'm not saying that money is the only answer but i'm talking about people so many people are doing a job they detest for someone they don't like they can't afford a holiday they can barely afford their bills that stress of doing the same thing every day for someone you don't like doing a job you don't like 
there's no there, there, there's nothing meaningful in any of that because it becomes really arid it becomes there's no there's no taste there's no color of a paycheck every week or every month or whatever you get paid that covers your subsistence that covers your bills so that you can have the basic necessities of life um there you can be happy having the basic necessities of life but you better be doing a job to provide you with some degree of spiritual nourishment and if you aren't doing that where do you find your happiness in life where's your off switch from all this crap and if you don't have that then eventually this will wear you down and you need to find a way out uh, and then sadly the more depressed you become the less convinced you become that there is a way out so i just think there's a responsibility on our leaders to implement laws, to implement things that are much more empathic. Uh, for example, things like um, uh, maternity leave. Uh, that needs to be given to both men and women and for a much longer period. Um, how we're accountable in our jobs needs to change. Instead of treating people as program-minded robots that clock in at this time, clock out at this time, and if you take a break within that time period, then you run the risk of being sacked and take self-agency away from human beings. So the most successful companies that, that never did that, Apple didn't do that. Apple allowed their, 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 their designers to sit around drinking coffee or whatever it is, work on their own time, and eventually these people come up with the greatest technological advancements in the last 20 years. Um, so... I think that uh, how we treat people, how, what we expect from people, what we glorify, what we value in our society, all that has to change. Uh, and I just think, uh, how do you get leaders who are completely subservient to the largest corporations in our countries um, to then vote against uh, a non, a, a system that's much more egalitarian when that's the complete opposite of the reason why they're elected? I. I it's going to take a, a massive change with the public first of what they want from the representatives. And it can't be, I only care about me, screw everybody else. Because when we see politics like what we've seen out here with children locked in cages, the reason why people don't really care is because it doesn't impact them personally. The people that it impacts personally is still such a small minority of the country and most of them can't vote. So they're politically irrelevant. So it's just they don't care. Same reason why, why we have all these other problems is that unless you're politically relevant, you don't count. And so uh, I, I think when you look at, at, at politics in the UK, same problem. Um, it, it's what our cultures are very similar in how they mirror each other and what they value at a society. And I, I just think that is inevitably going to produce few winners many losers, but the, so many people in that loser category don't want it to change in case they become a winner. This is why Americans are against overtaxing the wealthy, because they may be wealthy one day too. Sorry, man. Sorry. Sorry. Right, man. Sorry. Right. Um, yeah, I... And I think that's a big thing as well, isn't it? Is that if it doesn't affect the individual people, they've got a tendency to to yeah. just think, oh, it's, I've got enough going on, or I've Not got enough problem. on my plate. Yeah. yeah. But at the end of the day, mental health and stress and depression affect anyone and everyone. So I think that's something which... You know, it needs to be addressed. And 
Well, it just I like I said before, I, it worries me with three kids of my own, grown up, all yeah. boys. They're I trying to make sure they're equipped to deal with their feelings, to deal with their emotions, and to deal with their. There'll be a point where they'll feel low or they'll feel stressed, and it's trying to give them the tools to deal with it. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I'm just me. I got. I'm screwed up enough myself it's like i don't want to put my own issues on them as well if you by giving them the wrong advice as well so it's like you're sort of caught in two minds then but i think i think it's important to tell them that it's okay not to be okay you know because when it once a kid understands it's okay not to be okay then they can talk so that we don't they don't go through what you and i went through of being told you need to be strong need to shut up, you need to internalize your emotions, that becomes destructive. So I think it's imperative that kids are told this world is harsh, it's cruel. And look, you and I as kids got to make mistakes because the internet wasn't, I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm older than you, but I made a lot of mistakes that, thank God, no one goes back and looks at. And thank God there was no camera phones. And thank God there was no internet Um, because... Uh, I would be ruined by them, but the mistakes that I learned from, that I realized I was an idiot, I was stupid. You know, at one time in my life, I believed Batman was the savior of the world, and then I learned that that was not true. This is a, a you know, views evolve based on education. So today, the internet never forgets. These kids make mistakes. These kids are duped. These kids aren't allowed to be kids because they aren't allowed to make the mistakes that you and I made that they learn from, and. Because the internet doesn't forget, one mistake can be terminal. That is incredibly difficult for a child to deal with, for any human being, but especially a child. It's incredibly stressful for him, and I can safely say I agree with you on that. Is I'm so thankful that there was no camera phones and stuff when yeah. I was younger, because it can ruin you. You know, it can ruin, especially these days where companies Google. If you go for a job interview, companies mm-hmm. Google you. So if you're a teenager of like 15, 16, 17, and you get caught doing something on film or a picture, it can cause massive issues going into your adult life. Well, who's influencing our kids? Because when I was a kid, who was influencing me was Brian Robson, was Green Hill was relatively harmless television. Today, these kids are being influenced by Logan Paul, who's going over to Japan, walking through suicide forests and, and mocking them. It's uh, it's vines where they've got stunts set up where they're jumping in front of cars. Um, the example that these kids are getting in life is unfiltered. It's, it. I mean, even as they're proclivities change as they start to reach maturity. They have access to explicit content that you and I didn't. These kids are exposed to things that are just totally different. And so they're still processing it through the cha- through the, through the lens of a, an immature child, uh, a prepubescent child, yeah. and I, I just think it's a problem. What they don't understand, I think, with the YouTube stuff as well, is that they don't understand a lot of the videos on there are fake. Of course. Like set up. So they think that's a way to, yes. to behave and a way to act if you don't catch it in time. Um, yep. Right. I've kept you far longer than I said. All right, man. So I, apologize for that. Uh, I appreciate you coming on. 
like anytime from, from my personal experience with like grief especially but depression any sort of mental health issues is the worst thing you can do is not talk about it and ignore it and just pretend that it's all right because all that does is make it worse and then worse and worse and worse and then it, like you said i think you said earlier it becomes destructive because you keep pushing it down because you need to function for the day and you need to go and see whoever you go to work or go to school or go to see your friends so you're constantly pushing those emotions down in a way and it just leads to more and more issues later on in life at the time it could be anything and i think you have to give yourself in terms of grief you need to be able to grieve without worry of what's around you and you need to be able to work through your feelings or your emotions in all facets all facets of your mental health to stay healthy you need to work through your emotions good and bad um I well think... i completely agree with you and i think uh if you're going to complain about a mental health stigma and not talk about it then you have to realize that you're part of the problem um when you talk about it you'll find other wills others will too you'll be surprised about how many people around you are suffering the same thing and are willing to be honest about it because you were I know whenever I admitted I, I was struggling, I was blown away by how many messages I got from people who I assumed were the happiest people I'd ever seen in my life who were struggling. People who were on the edge. I got private messages from people that I was amazed. Um, Well-known footballers, um, celebrities in life, uh, ordinary individuals, it didn't matter. It, tra it traversed all walks of life and you'll find that when you're when you have the courage to talk about it you also give others the courage and so um this is accumulative and if you it, w the people that are struggling i'm not suggesting you expo expose it to anybody you have to find people you trust but um it is part of your right that you talk about it yeah and i think it's so important to remember that no matter how bad you feel or how bad things can get this is like you say when you do admit that you do find that there's many many people who will help you or will try and help you or will just be there to listen to you um people you've never met people That's you've right. met once people who you know well who you thought were fine and perhaps aren't it's just one of those things that the best way to combat it is to be open and honest with yourself and with other people. I get it. With people you trust. Absolutely. And uh, I got a text yesterday from an individual who is extremely well known in the UK, um, around the world actually, uh, plays in a band and a very famous band, someone else who's struggling himself. And I haven't spoke to this individual maybe in about two months, two, three months. And just text out of the blue, just checking on you. Hi, are you? If you need to talk, I'm here. Give me a call. You know, and we talked for a while. And that means the world to me. And that's all a result of coming out and saying, I don't, you may look at my life as perfect on social media, but my life's anything but perfect. It's chaotic as anybody else's. It's unhappy as anybody else's. It's, I've now found a degree of happiness and I cling on to that. And, um, 
but I don't get complacent. And thankfully, like I said, I, I, I don't rely on substances anymore. Um, but I'm also acutely aware that that can change in 30 minutes from now. Yeah, so you got to just take it one day at a time. Yeah, exactly. And just at the end, of it, you're all, all human, and you just got to do what you work through, what you got to work through, and take each day as it comes. My perspective on this is: this is the only party I'm ever going to be at. I will never be alive as me again. I will never be a father to my my kids again. I will. I can go to my deathbed depressed. Or I can try to enjoy this party, um, but regardless, the time will be the same, and I can have regrets, or I can have happy memories. And I'm trying to make sure I don't have regrets of stressing about things that never happened, of worrying about things that will never happen, and um, telling me myself a story that isn't true. So I'm just a human being. I'm a fallible human being, like everybody else. I make mistakes every day. I'm far from perfect, but I want to enjoy this miracle of life that we're all so fortunate to, to to be born and i want to enjoy my time here because it can be over at any minute as we as we both talked about with your father and, and my partner yeah indeed indeed it can um right i'm gonna let phil go so phil tell them um, tell the people where they can reach you on social media Yes, you can reach me at uh, at Malakians. That's M A L A C H I A N S. Uh, if anyone's struggling with anything, please reach out to me. If you direct message me, please be patient. Um, unfortunately, I get a lot of spam direct messages, so I don't always see it um, until later. But uh, if you're struggling with anything, reach out to me. Uh, reach out to say here or whoever, and uh, we will. We I'll get back to you. And, uh, no judgment. Whatever it is you're struggling with. You're not alone. Yep, same for me. My uh, Twitter is at acecast underscore nation. And if you want to send me a DM, anyone, I'll uh, reply and see what we can do to help out. Um, right, thanks for joining me, Phil. I really appreciate it. And, uh, I know it's a difficult subject, but like you say, it's better to talk about it and see what we can do. Keep doing this. Keep up the good work and uh, keep reaching people because we need more of this. Indeed. Cheers, man. Thanks, Matt. Sports Social Podcast Network.